Hi, welcome to Cameras or Whatever, making all of your nerdiest camera fantasies come true. I'm your host, Tyler Stallman, and today we're going to talk about shooting film. Is this a trend, or is it a real thing? Is it going to last? Are we going to be able to develop film in a few more years? Cameron Whitman and I sit down and figure it all out. Hey, Cameron. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> good. good, how are you doing? I'm well. So I thought maybe we would sit down and talk in front of a microphone about things we talk about all the time, particularly today that we talk about film, Yeah, yeah. which is something that we've both started getting into this year. And I think a lot of other people have started getting into th- this year. I, my bigger question, and I want to know what you think about it, is like, what, what is happening? Is it a thing that is actually kind of a movement? Is it something everybody's suddenly picked up on? Or is it just that I've stumbled on this community? So now I'm seeing all these people that are shooting film. And I happen to have a few friends like you that have kind of been rediscovering it mm-hmm. lately as well. So when it, I say film, I mean like celluloid, like 35 millimeter. I'm talking about movies. Right. Of course. <laughs> film photography. So, yeah, it's something that I've thought a lot about. It's it's actually where I started in my photography. And so. You know, when I first got into photography, I was more interested in, in learning how to use the darkroom than I actually was in figuring out how to take a photo. So um, I actually built a darkroom before I even moved on from a really cheap N65 camera. So you, wait, you started, did you not take the photos until the darkroom was built or did you more shoot some photos, take them to the lab and then decide you needed a darkroom? It's, it's kind of ridiculous because so when I got, when I got interested in it, I just like, was completely overwhelmed and I was a bartender and I was making a lot of money and I was young and I didn't really have any other expenses or issues. And I was just, uh, just quit playing music in my band. So I had a lot of time and I was really curious. And so I didn't really know how to ask people, you know, how to do things. And so, and I didn't really have any great resources. So the only thing that I had was to either go to college or just do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did both. So I, I enrolled in a college course and I was really impatient. So I went to a camera store, which is no longer even around. And they had, they were just, you know, unloading a bunch of crap. So I bought one of these like Jobo, uh, roller tank things where you can like actually develop color film and, and, uh, and paper. And it's like a, it, it keeps like a, a warm bath or whatever. It's all since gone, but, um, and I bought like a really cheap and larger and, uh, ended up building a sink and, uh, my, my stepfather was a uh, contractor. So he came and and helped me build a sink that had, you know, like temperature controlled faucets and all that. So I, I, I went the whole distance and, uh, how old were you at this point? So this is, co- this is college, college years we're talking about right well, now. This is that the, my, that the building I, happened? I went late. So I was 27. When this all went down. Oh, okay. So this is. Uh, hey, well, almost- you know what? This actually reminds me. You're, mm-hmm. you're t- like, this is actually a story I haven't heard from you before. But yeah. um, anybody watching, I'm also realizing there's been zero introduction to who either of us are. <laughs> I think Good wherever point. I'm posting this, people may already be aware of who I am. And I'm Tyler Stallman. And we both, we work together at Stocksy United, which is a stock photography company. And that's. And we know each other and it's a co-op that means that all the photographers share in the resources and the decision-making and the profits and the everything. And we've been working there together for quite a while. So that's our connection. And Cameron's a editor there. You're yeah, what kind of editor? Top, top of the, <clears throat> top of the food chain. King editor. <laughs> um, I am the, uh, the senior editor and, uh, well, I share that duty with, with Ivar Tennyson. But we uh, we basically manage all the editor teams and take a lot of the responsibilities for for everything that comes in and out of the collection. So it's a it's a pretty important job, and uh, it's one that it's it's only selective people could actually endure it because it's it's not <laughs> it's not the kind of job yeah, I, that I would <laughs> imagine most people no, would exactly. be able to do. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult, but uh, it's something that I feel like I was really made to do you know it actually reminds me of that i used to work at a photo lab i worked at multiple labs Mm -hmm. 
And then I also, I did inspection at, at iStock Photo, which is, you know, kind of a similar role. Mm-hmm. And they're basically, it's really a similar thing, just staring at a ton of photos one after the other. But when you're doing it in the context of stock photography, there's a lot more factors. <laughs> you yeah. have to, you have to, your, your mental facilities have to be a lot more active. Yeah. And I think that, that we could actually spend an hour talking about that. So, you know, that would probably be a great other episode about like what it means to break down images. Yeah. And the, I find it interesting, the, the different phases that that goes through as well, that like, you know, when you just look at one image on its own, it's a very different experience from having 5,000 images dropped on your lap. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you start, you start seeing very different things about photos when you're approaching them differently like that. Yeah, it's it, it actually you have to learn how to to separate these things. You know, when you see like a really small series versus a really big one or even a one off, you you learn to appreciate these little details very much differently. And the more pictures that are in a series, the more critical I'm going to be about each one of the details. But yeah, that's like I said, we could go on for an hour about that. <laughs> yeah, well, and we should. But <laughs> yeah. first, maybe let's. Maybe let's stick to the, the film go, thing go back today. To the film. Yeah. So, you know, when it, I was 27, I stopped playing music or slowed down my, my music role and uh, needed a new direction and was always really curious about photography, but knew I wasn't really, didn't really have anything going on in there. And uh, so I was embarrassed, to be honest with you. That's probably the, the biggest part of why I made a darkroom is because I didn't want to anybody else to see how bad I was. And I wanted to be able to take care of it all on my own and not have to, to deal with criticism, which is <laughs> ironic and hilarious at this point. You know what? I actually, I think that a lot of people that drop their stuff off at labs don't, a lot of people don't think anybody sees those photos. <laughs> <laughs> Just judging by what comes through. Um, <laughs> uh, really, I don't, I, I think they think it's just a machine. They just think it's a big printer. But Wasn't there a movie about that? Like about a guy who oh, worked yeah. at a yeah, Walmart Robert, or Robert, something Robert like that Robert. and saw some There's really creepy one stuff. One hour photo? Was that the one? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I didn't watch it because it seemed too creepy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So but anyway, I, I guarantee if you go into any photo lab, there is the inside of a cupboard somewhere with every hilarious <laughs> rejected photo that fell onto the onto the floor and somebody <laughs> needed to stick it like. Yeah. Anyway, that, that sounds like that of, sounds like a, a fun photo to take. Yeah. Yeah. The secrets of photo labs. But OK, so you're you're running your own. Lab. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I built it up and, um, I ended up, it ended up serving me well because I was two steps ahead of everybody else in the class when I started the college because like, you know, I was, I was working on my own constantly. And so when it came to printing and developing, like I was just really far ahead of everybody. And, uh, <clears throat> that was fun. I, I got off on it and it, I got a little cocky too. So that, that ended up not being the best part, but how long did you, how long did you end up shooting film for which is like shooting it seriously you know once you started thinking of yourself as a photographer how many years was film the primary medium for you okay so that that's kind of a, a complicated question because during that time before i ever picked up a digital like i think i I'd probably shot for three or four years before i got my first digital and then um i had stopped going to school and i had gotten kind of bogged down in some other stuff and um lost my, my train of thought more or less and, but kept shooting, but, um, didn't really have a really strong focus and didn't know what was going on. So then, you know, when I finally got back, you know, my, the last class that I had to take was a studio lighting class. And so at the exact same time that I, that I started this class, so I went and I got uh, a Nikon D80, right? So at the exact same time that I started this class, I got accepted to iStock photo. And so my first six months it, um, as a contributor iStock was submitting nothing but film shots that I scanned at home. <clears throat> it was pretty interesting how that trajectory went because I started off with getting a lot of declines. And I remember that <laughs> phase of iStock. That was, it's funny. It, just as iStock started booming was as film was, you know, on its way out. So there was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of the very, f- the very first photo <clears throat> on iStock I know is it's like a, I think it's a cross-processed uh, slide. Uh, I bet by, it's amazing. By, uh, by Brad, Brad nice. Ralph. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. So, 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I was getting a lot of declines, just getting frustrating. And then I just, I had the studio lighting class and I was just like, all right, you know, what? I'm going to, I'm going to finally just get a digital camera and see if I can make everything come together. Because like when I was doing this, this studio lighting, like I wanted to see what I was doing. Cause like at that point I was super intimidated by strobes and even, well, not, I wouldn't say hot lights. I I'd, I'd done some stuff with hot lights and had reasonable results, but strobe scared the hell out of me. I didn't know how to use a flash properly and I didn't want to, frankly, it just wasn't something that I, I even thought was a thing I wanted to do, but I knew I needed to. And, um, when I was just starting in stock, that was kind of the thing. So I, you know, had incentive. So once I, I started digital, there was just a chain of events that kind of sucked because the house I was living in was getting ready to be remodeled. So the darkroom had to be taken down. And the initial the initial idea was that we were going to, to rebuild the darkroom in the, in the house. And uh, what ended up happening was that when, uh, when the basement was finished and all remodeled, we had dropped the floors. And so like we'd had like a full size living area down there. And um, instead of a darkroom in that, in that whole new room that didn't even exist before, we ended up, I ended up building a, a lighting studio, which I, oh. I started uh, doing portraits, both for stock and for, um, for my local headshot business. And it was really, it was, it was as soon as I bought the D80 that I absolutely just stopped shooting film. And um, I didn't expect that to happen, but it was, it coincided at the same time that the, um, you know, the, the darkroom was no longer an option for me. And so I just couldn't really bear the thought of taking my film to a lab. <laughs> That's what this was all about. Yeah. Was just avoiding avoiding creeps like me at the lab i guess so you know like well you know i'd also i tried a couple rolls of uh black and white film at a local lab and i won't name them just in case they ever hear about it but because they are still open but they uh they did a really lousy job and so like every time i would get my film back there would be like uh you know white spots on the film yeah there's plenty of lousy labs out there yeah so it it, it just really it was like not worth it but it, it really also sucked because i just started shooting four by five and i i got a four by five view camera and I was really excited about that, but that was, you know, once the, the studio was gone, I could no longer do it, you know, like I, I couldn't afford to do it. So that was it. It was just over. So fast forward to, um, the end of 2014 and, um, I was hanging out with a photographer buddy of mine, who's a local guy, who's, um, a really well-known fine art photographer here. And he has been, he's been around for a very long time and he shoots digital now, but he had all these really amazing prints that he had made with his, uh, both 35 millimeter panorama camera and a, uh, a Yashica Mat 124G. And I was so impressed with the Yashica stuff that, uh, I, I just, I was like talking to him about it and just all jazzed. And then, you know, he's just like, well, do you want to borrow it? And I was like, yes. <laughs> And so, um, you know, I went, I went to uh, the camera store and I, I bought a roll of 120 and I'd never shot medium format. I'd only shot 35 and large. And so um, I had no idea what I was doing and just got kind of like excited to do it and uh, ended up, you know, like I, I, I took some shots and I ended up making a couple of shots that I really liked and it, it was exciting. You know, it just, it felt new and it felt different. You know, it really opened up. And some ideas about photography that I'd kind of forgotten. And it also, I realized why I think that the movement that's happening now is actually happening. Is that? It, it kind of goes back to like the look of digital just in general, right? So like when you look at digital images that are just processed straight out of Lightroom without any of these new presets that we're using, unless you're like incredibly savvy and, and smart, and you have a, a, a beautiful eye, like it's really, it's kind of hard to, to get a really pleasing color palette from a mm -hmm. digital image. Like the raw files are just not like, I mean, you can, you can do anything from them, but like as a base level, they're pretty unattractive. Actually, you know, maybe that's an interesting part of it is that, is it a coincidence that it's only now at the same time that f this film thing is happening, that we also suddenly have good presets? No, I think the for the presets... first time, like how did how did we go this long with our taste in digital colors being terrible? So bad. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think that um, they're hand in hand. So, I, you know, from from what I from my experience, 
you know, like I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't uh, like a, like a Visco or Mastin Labs wasn't the, my first taste of, of film style presets. Yeah, no. Well, and I mean, we should also distinguish between that, you know, you and I know what kind of presets we like, mm-hmm. but we're not talking about like putting a vintage filter over it. Correct. Like a, for a long time, the, the presets were, we're going to pull the shadows to be cyan and the highlights to be orange. And that's, that's a film look and we'll add some noise yeah. and things like that. And what we, what we're referring to that we like is, you know, the, the best of, of VSCO and the best of Mastin Labs, which is a film approach to color, you know, a natural adding emphasis and pushing skin tones in a pleasing direction and, mm-hmm. you know, taking, just taking colors as they are and like pushing them and massaging them into, into something a little more attractive. Yeah. And it, it's really kind of interesting how the trajectory goes. Cause like I got a program from Imaginomic, which is actually a, a local Virginia software company that, that made these third party Photoshop workarounds and they were really slow and it took a long time to render them. Um, but they had, they had this one and I actually won it in a contest and, and uh, you could apply different slide film looks to your, and, and the, the way that the grain worked was not very good. It looked pretty ugly and the colors were like, I had to, I had to learn how to finesse it because just out of the, out of the box, it was, it was pretty tragic, but like, you know, you could, you could, work it into a place where it actually looked good. And I started working with that. And then, you know, when you're talking about like adding the, the tone, the toning. So, um, with that, you know, there was the Lightroom kind of made it easy for everybody and, and added those toning sliders. Uh, but I actually went about it in a different way and, and did it all with gradient maps in Photoshop. And so you could, you could take it to much further extremes doing that and get much more interesting colors. So anyway, I was using a combination of these things and I, you know, like I didn't realize that the whole reason that I was really getting into this is because of, you know, hipstamatic and Instagram. And I know that sounds mm-hmm. kind of lame, but it's, it is really the case. Like we were all looking at these well, images and kind of, yeah, that's kind of cool. Cause it looks different. Yeah. Well, but you know, what's funny is that when hipstamatic first it was hipstamatic and then Instagram, but like, I was so excited by those filters. I was like, finally the iPhone has nice filters. Mm-hmm. And looking at them now, they were not nice. No, they're awful. But it was so much worse <laughs> just a little while before. But like everybody, it's like everybody was blind to it mm-hmm. this whole time. The context for me is that I was shooting, I was shooting film for, I don't know, like five years. And I worked at some labs and I didn't really understand photography yet. But then I got a digital camera and that's when it started becoming more of a career. Mm-hmm. And now looking back, I spent years, many years where the whole digital thing was a big step back for me. And those film photos I shot, a lot of them are much more attractive. Like they look a lot nicer just because I didn't have to know what I was doing for there to be a nice color palette yep. in the photo because Kodak and Fuji had done all the work and I was just reaping the benefits, but I didn't see that difference for, for years. I feel like, you know, the fact that, um, the, my, the SLRs I was using would, render colors in, I don't know how you describe like the default of digital. It's like, it's more realistic in a very boring way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I, 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 I don't really know the language to describe the difference, but it is hard, really but like there's, there's something about like the, the greens and the pinks and the reds that just don't render in a, in a pleasing way. They, they, to me, it reminds me of like starburst. Like right. there's this, like, well, you know, I do have a, I do have a good example mm-hmm of where you can see it is just looking at skin tones. Mm -hmm. Like the way to improve skin tones, even if you're not adding a preset or whatever, is like if you compress them a bit. So when there's a lot of magenta and if the, and then the, some of the yellows are shifting towards green, if you pull your greenest yellows and your most magenta oranges together and everything is, ends up being a little bit more of the same pinky orange or the same, well, for a, somebody of a lighter complexion, sure. <laughs> um, that's, then it starts to become a lot more pleasing. You stop seeing blemishes and the difference between 
well, yeah, the difference in blemishes disappears. It's very simple and it looks great. And that's something that film and a lot of the film presets do is they squash those skin tones a little bit together so that you you don't see the patchiness as much in people's skins. Yes. And this isn't something that digital does. Digital just like it lets it be unattractive because it's more accurate. Yeah, I, I think that I would say that, that digital is, um, for better or worse, brutally honest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, especially yeah. as a studio headshot photographer, it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's way too revealing, you know? It's so like, what happened with like, where were Kodak and Fuji this whole time that they had all this science mm -hmm. and there are very smart people there that like really understood color theory in a way that they could, like, they knew how to make skin look beautiful and to make foliage amazing and like everything they knew, they knew this for years. And still every camera, camera manufacturer is putting out presets built into the cameras that look like garbage yeah complete garbage it's only now there's some i don't know like some of the fuji presets are okay yeah and they're still no not they're still not even what they claim to be though no yeah like how <laughs> how did this happen people if there's anybody that should have spotted that like oh digital colors could be more attractive it should have been the people producing film and they should have been in there and even at this point why isn't there an attractive color setting, you know, preset on my, on my cannons or on my, or your, on your Nikons. Um, well, I think that because, uh, third party people actually answered the question for them. And that, that goes back to, to where yeah. I believe this whole thing came around is because I think that, that, you know, when back in the days when I was using Imaginomic and then alien skin and all these other, you know, uh, you know, brands that were coming out, that were trying to create film style, um, you know, but there was a lot of years of this. I mean, this oh, yeah. wasn't like a, there wasn't like six months no, where like is, they just couldn't turn it around quick enough. It's like a five year thing. But so. No. Uh, more? more? <laughs> yeah. What is it now? We're at 2014. Yeah. And digital really kicked in around, I don't know, for me, it was like, I was noticing it like 2001 and two is when it started to really. Uh, I think that it got, I think digital really kicked in in 2005. Like, like when, uh, yeah. Okay. So maybe the benchmark should be the, um first rebel okay yeah when fair. was that I don't, I don't remember uh i would say that was probably 2004 or five canon rebel what was it called oh i don't even know one i'm gonna call it <laughs> <laughs> that's a wikipedia uh, question <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know digital rebel i really want to know this do, 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 which is incredibly interesting for anybody to listen to is people googling <laughs> Okay, I'm not finding it anyway. So yeah, let's say it was 2005. There's nine years now, and it's only maybe last year that, that some of these companies started getting really good. Yeah. That's a big gap. No, it's not because the technology wasn't there. Like, you could have done this with Photoshop curves, or, um, I mean, the, the, the adjustments could have been done this whole time, but nobody took the initiative. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, so... You know, okay, so to back to the question of like, you know, why is, is it now becoming a thing? It's because honestly, I think that, that never before in the history, obviously, of, of photography is, is um has it been so ubiquitous that you could actually like and people see more pictures now than they've ever seen. Like, and this is people who don't even care. Mm. You know, uh Facebook, Twitter, whatever, Instagram, like all of these things have, you know, made it so... A non-photographer now takes more photos than most photographers did 10 years ago. That's right. That's that's absolutely true because it's cheap. It's, you know, everybody can. <laughs> Free cheap. Yeah. yeah, I mean, think about it when you were, you know, when you were just, you know, taking snapshots on a, on a you know, like automatic 35 millimeter film camera. Like that was still a 10 to $15 endeavor for each yeah. roll. You know, that, that adds up pretty quick still to this day. So, um, you know, but now I think that like people are so used to seeing images that the, like the collective, like taste and, or like understanding of what makes a good photo is actually, the bar is actually raised quite a lot. Yeah. You know, so I think that even people who don't know that much about photography can recognize good from bad. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of variables in there, but, um, that that's just one one piece of it and the other piece being that you know the way that social media allows us to share our images you know more people are actually talking about it there was a time where 
you know, like back in the day, like the old film guys, like they would, they would, they would take notes of everything that they did. Right. They would, they would note the film. They would note like, you know, sometimes individual shots and how the settings were. So they wouldn't forget. I've, try, I've tried to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, and I always forget. <laughs> for people of our generation, that, that, that seems insane. Mm-hmm. Because like the amount of, of work that it takes to do that just is crazy. Like even still when I'm shooting film, I'm not writing things down. I'm like, I'll either remember that or I'll forget that. And, or I can look at it and guess. Um, but you know, back then everybody used to write all this stuff down. So now like, you know, if you look at somebody's Flickr page, unless they've wiped their data clean, their metadata, you can actually look and see like almost everything they did and even guess, you know, some of the, the way that they might've finished it. You know, you know, once you look at so many images, you get, you get a pretty like clear picture of, of like the steps that people are taking. Do you, like do you try to evaluate it and figure it out as you're looking oh all the time yeah like that's I, that's something i actually started doing with movies a long time ago and i just never stopped like i sometimes would lose the plot because i'd be so interested in the cinematography <laughs> yeah. that i totally do that too sometimes yeah. i'll sit there and start counting how long each cut is <laughs> i'm like i'm like i'm trying to judge the pace of the film and i'm like one two one two three one two three four <laughs> Or yeah, just, you know, like I'll also play the guess, guess the, um, focal length game. Oh yeah. Like totally. 30, 35 millimeter, 50 millimeter, 135. And I'm probably wrong the whole time. I have no way of confirming any of this, but I just sit there like imagining that I have some kind of sixth sense into, uh, what any focal length looks like. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it makes a lot of, you know, questionable, um, writing a lot more tolerable because if the, if the, <laughs> if the cinematography is good, it's like, Oh, I don't really care. Um, and also with lighting, you know, it's same thing. Um, but with film, you know, so I think that what happened is that like, you know, then when VSEO came out and really made, you know, like a good preset that was easy to use, like it really kind of leveled the playing ground. For me, at least, I think that like, you know, all of a sudden I, start, I started seeing stuff everywhere that was better than the stuff that that I was trying to do on my own without using any of these presets, using Photoshop actions that I'd created myself. And the 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 thing that I didn't realize is it wasn't about like accurate looking grain or um, you know adding a, a vignette or uh, how much fade mm-hmm. it had or oh whatever my god the vignettes yeah totally and you know what it, the whole thing was it was about the specific color palettes yeah yeah we were we we're very confused for <laughs> yeah and like you know I look- you, well, you know who knew who who never forgot and who kept getting it right was um color graders grading color technicians in film in um like movie production yeah um, they are always, they're always a good place to look. I think they're actually, I mean, a lot of people that make movies are way ahead of a lot of photographers because it's harder and you need to know a lot more. Um, yeah. and there's more specialists too, right? So like, there's a guy that just sits there staring at colors all day and doesn't think about composition or focal length. He's like, this is what human skin looks like. And this is what a tree should be when it's green yeah you're, you're, you're talking yellow. about massive teams versus like individuals yeah so and so that like specialized knowledge you know the, so movies kept looking good actually like mm-hmm. they were being filmed more on digital and you know they 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 knew what they were doing um but that's actually somewhere that i started learning about what i was doing wrong is watching like tutorial videos on, on color grading and um yeah, it's like you start looking at it a little bit differently. That's, I mean, that's when, especially skin, that's when I started thinking about, like, this is how you get a complexion looking nicer. So you squash the, the oranges a bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the other examples of it are like, you know, Fuji takes the greens and pushes them a bit more cyan. Um, like, that's that's like the quickest way, usually, that you can like guess if something's probably to me i think right fuji like if it's fuji or kodak is like did the cyans or did the greens go a bit a bit blue yeah or did they stay yellower um and if it's yellower it's kodak if it's blue or it's probably fuji maybe um, no, i think that's actually that's exactly <laughs> yeah. my experience with it at least and so yeah and then 
And there's other there's differences in in the skin as well that are harder to describe. And I, like I don't know if I can nail it down. Maybe Fuji's a little more magenta, maybe to me in the in the oranges. Yes, I think that, that that's actually very true. Like in my and that's actually not just with any particular Fuji. That's yeah. kind of across the board. And I also find that their films need to be shot. At, um, you have to overexpose the films a little bit more than you do with Kodak films. By the way, the Canon EOS 300D was re- released in August 2003. Yeah. And how many yeah. megapixels was that? That's a good <laughs> well, now I got to Google some more. Uh, it was $899. And this was the first EFS camera as well. ISO sensitivity 100 to 1600, 2.5 frames per second. Um, not seeing the megapixels. Six. Six megapixels. So I didn't have this camera at the time, but I wanted it. <laughs> it <laughs> seems uh, like the most incredible thing ever. I was using, um, I started with a Olympus omd or i'm sorry om1 now it's the omd Mm -hmm. um shooting film and then as the digital stuff came out i was in college and they had the canon g1 that i could borrow um and actually i still have one in the basement somewhere um (laughs) basement of my parents house um it's pretty and yeah the quality out of that is so bad i mean it's not even close to the cell phones that we shoot now and i was shooting it at a lower resolution to save card space because all my memory cards were like to you know 256 megabytes (laughs) (laughs) oh that was that was the biggest one (laughs) so um wow what i mean i kind of wish i'd stuck with film a little bit longer Mm -hmm. um instead of just like picking it up now yeah i you know going back to that it was interesting to you know when i started digital and I was trying to, to shoot for stock, which was something that like, for me was like, it made no sense whatsoever. Like I had no mind for stock at all. And, uh, it didn't even, I didn't even get it. You know, like I just looked at it all and I was like, every bit of this is so stupid. Why do people do this? (laughs) And, uh, you know, like I was just, I was basically, I was Mm -hmm. kind of at my wits end and and a, a friend of mine who bought a lot of stock was like, why don't you try this out? And so then it just became a game. It was like, you know, how can I do this? But my photography suffered like amazingly, you know, like it was like going back to step one when I moved to digital. Yeah. I, I, it's very mixed for me. I mean, in some ways I got a lot worse, but also like that transition for me was, uh, it was just as I was starting working at, at iStock cause I worked in the office. Um, so the, the first thing, Actually, I was shooting film for them at first. Uh, Bruce Livingston, who started um, iStock, was having a friend and I, he was like hiring us personally to shoot stock for him. And he was going to license on iStock because he was like, I don't really have time to shoot anymore, but I want photos on my account. And um, so we were like buying film and like kind of shooting for him. And um, and that didn't really make sense. So it didn't last. And he started lending us his digital camera. Um, and said, shoot people. And that was like the, that was the like, you know, head explode moment. Like, Oh, take pictures of humans. That that's what other people find interesting. Not just like garbage in the gutter or trees in a forest or whatever. I don't know. Like, you know, I, I I know I've seen web comics, like describing the phases of photography. And it's like, you start with your keyboard (laughs) and then you move outside to the stop sign and then you know eventually start shooting people but or not or Or not (laughs) yeah Yeah, but that was that yeah that was like the big step for me and i definitely i got a lot better because of digital i i i couldn't have learned that quickly um i couldn't have started making it a career when i was young with just film because i couldn't afford it no that's that's a great point and i think that that's actually um we have a lot to owe um, in general, like not just us as individuals, but like the the industry in general. I mean, it depends on. I guess it depends on which side of the fence you are. Because if you're one of the old school stock shooters, you probably hate people like, like us, like you, like nothing <laughs> in the world. But yeah. um, you know, like the the truth is, is that that digital made it much more accessible for a wider group of people, and then the internet made it a lot easier for people to learn. 
um, without having to, to pay high prices to do so. And I mean, you, well, there was you this, could, there's a really strong movement of people saying that iStock was ruining the photo industry. Mm-hmm. I think like we might've made a t-shirt that said that, <laughs> but it was like, you know, for, and before that it was actually even just uh, stock photography period was ruining the, the regular f- photo industry, right? Like the photo industry has been ruined so many times over. Yeah. But the point is, is that every time a lot more people become professional photographers, there are more people that are able to make this um, their livelihood and, and, and do it professionally because there's also greater demand as it became way cheaper and much more of a commodity to create high quality images. It meant that a lot more people were buying it because they could afford it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, production went through the roof and so did the amount of people buying it. And it's just because of digital, of course. Yeah. And actually, that's kind of interesting where that leads this whole conversation, because um, now. The tools and the, the, the knowledge and, and how to create a beautiful picture, and I'm not talking about context or art, just talking about technically, like how to create nice images technically is is becomes so much easier for everybody that like it really has changed the the game. Like you have to be smarter in how you're making your photos. And so um, how you, how you, the steps that you're going to take to to actually get down and start creating your art matters a lot more now than it did two years ago. And so I think that that's part of why film is so appealing to people like me is because like, I know that like, that there's, and armies of people out there that can create images just as well as I can in terms of technically speaking. And they can, they can put processes on them that they can look at mine and guess and go find something that's close enough. So like, mm-hmm. there's no real competitive edge to shooting digital in terms of creating like a very strikingly unique look. Now that's not true with everybody. There are certain photographers who do manage to, to create a look that is wholly their own. You know, and they really own it, you know, and that's speaking digitally. But um, I think that that's really that, you know, part of what makes shooting films so appealing is, is that like, you know, first of all, the, the, the barrier to entry is, is way more difficult. You know, like even though like it's it's easy to get a really nice film camera these days because they're dirt cheap. Um, you know, the, the actual idea of buying film and then finding a place to process it and then knowing what to ask for. Mm-hmm. when you're going to get it processed and then you know so there's there's all these like hoops and, and steps that you got to jump through and once you start to to unravel the mystery you realize that there's a ton of resources and there are a ton of people who are like really super invested in this this movement and so now there's you know it's like are, are you were the person that i asked others that like you know i said like where should i send film like i don't know and and you r- rattled off like five or six different labs that you knew about um, Which are all, well, not all, but many of them are new. I mean, yeah. before here in, in Calgary, there was London Drugs, which is like, <laughs> you know, like there was the kind in like Costco mm-hmm. and those were the options around here because a lot of the professional labs had been closing um, and there just, there wasn't a lot left, but now there are, well, I mean, let's rattle them off now in case people don't know about them. I, I send my stuff in Canada, the the good lab that is doing a, you know, digital first, like scans as the priority and a good mail-in system is Caribou Lab in Toronto. Um, and that's, there's actually a difference too. Like there's a difference between a good lab that is traditional and that is like part of this n- new thing, I think, right? Like there is, right? Yeah, like absolutely. they, their, their, their pricing structure is more about getting you all of the photos scanned at a very high quality. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. And that is, I don't understand why that, why there'd be another priority, but there's still labs that, I, that people recommend to me. They're like, Oh, this place is great, but they're charging like a dollar per photo yep. as the pricing to scan it or, or more. And it, yeah, it is more. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Like I to scan the, you have to scan the roll to print them. Can you please just hand over the scans that you made? Yeah, it's absurd. So like, you know, for instance, there's a local lab and I'm not going to mention who they are, but like, um, they're like the pro lab for this area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to, to get high quality scans, all color corrected from a single roll and get it processed and you know, all that. I mean, after everything is said and done, you're going to pay 
what, 75 bucks, a hundred bucks. Oh my God. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I've seen that. And that's it's crazy. That's just, you know, it, it, that's, that's a, a, a barrier for entry. And so, yeah. you and know, it's, and that's the kind of thing that's going to let, to let film disappear and fade. Yeah, exactly. So we, is if that's the only local option, then. Yeah. So we really do owe it to these labs to shout out their names. So like, you know, as you said, like in Toronto, there's caribou, um, in the States, we have quite a number. There's Richard in LA, which is, uh, you know, I think that they're probably one of the more well-known. Um, yeah, RFL is often what they go by, right? Richard? Richard Film Labs, yeah. isn't it? RFL? Uh, yeah, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, that might be right. I thought you just said FL. Excuse me. Oh. Um, yeah, I thought that, that's actually, I was thinking when you said that, I thought, okay, well, you're talking about Andy Film Lab, which is. Uh, oh, Richard, richardphotolab.com. Okay, cool. Um, indie film lab is another one that, that's, uh, that they do great work and they're, they have a lot of initiatives to get people interested in it. They do great social media stuff. Uh, the, the price for entry is, is fair. It's reasonable. Um, they're also very popular. So the wait times are getting pretty long, but like, it's still, it's a really neat option and they're, they're really willing to work with you to, to make sure that you get the results that you're looking for. It seems to me, all these places are getting popular though. Like all of them. At the same have wait, time. Have wait times. Nobody, like everybody seems to be doing really well. Yeah. So what else From we have, the uh, the find lab. And that's... Yeah. The find lab is interesting. That's, that's how, well, not the find lab, but, um, um, his name is slipping my mind. The guy that started it is how I was getting into it. I'm sure a lot of other people did too, but through film is not dead. Um, the book, uh, Jonathan Canales, is that his? It sounds his right. Name? Sorry, I'm looking so much, up. <laughs> so much Googling in this show. This is the most boring show ever. <laughs> yeah, their about page is, a, is a, actually a video, so that doesn't really help. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know that I'm saying the right name, but I can't. <laughs> right. anyway. Uh, yeah, anyway, but if you go to filmisnotdead.com, that's connected to the Find Lab and will give you information about it. But like that book is totally what made me feel like it was feasible. Like you're not crazy for thinking about shooting film more often yeah. or, or trying to make it part of your business. Yeah. And that was actually, you shared that with me and that was actually the one that, that I had the same kind of epiphany where I was like, Oh, okay. So this is not just a, a really dumb idea that I'm having right now. You know, Jonathan Canlis, L Canlis. Canlis. Well, that's what I was saying before. I just, now that I'm reading it, whatever, yeah. <laughs> but he's great. He's such a talented awesome photographer and he does like seminars and stuff and like i love it yeah i think it's also really really neat to that um that there's something going on in my home state of utah that's that cool yeah so that's pretty rad um there's also film box lab is uh i don't know that one so i found out about them through one of stocksy's contributors marta locklear and her work is absolutely stunning and so of course i asked her you know, a what do you shoot, <laughs> and uh, who, are you, which lab are you using? And so, you know, she told me, and uh, Nashville, yeah, and uh, they do they do really really nice work as well. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting because you can follow all of these labs on Instagram, and they they uh, they promote the photographers that use them, and they share their work. And yeah, it's, yeah, the community's awesome with these. I really I, I love that part of it. I follow almost all of them on. Uh, on Instagram. Yeah, it's super cool. And so I think that that's, that's really what it is. is it's, it's about, it's about a movement that, that feels a little bit more like, like a thing, you know, it's, it feels a little bit more real for some reason, mm -hmm. even though like, you know, if we really wanted to debate like what's more real between digital and film, I think that digital would probably actually win because like, you know, I mean, film is, is, is almost a bigger mystery than digital is these days. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's something about the analog process and chemistry that's just, it's, well, it's, and it's, it's not going to last like <laughs> as much as it's a thing right now, I can't be delusional enough to think that it's the future. No, um, no. I think that, yeah. I think it might last, but not in a, it'll never be what it was. There's no possibility of that. Like there's just yeah. the, the cost and, and, you know, as, as a professional photographer, like it's not something that I could find fit into my, into my workflow that would make mm -hmm. sense. You know, like I could do portraiture with it and that's it. 
And I think that that's yeah. really kind of the movement is art and portraiture are the really the only things that are really sucking in new people into film. Like there's still a lot of people that are shooting film for landscape and stuff like that. And they're using view cameras and stuff, but they're kind of like traditionalists. They're not like new, new people that are just finding out about it. Yeah. Well, or like when you can be careful, film makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I never want to take a risk with film. It's too, it's too expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. See, but now like, you know, I, I, Luckily, I, I have a situation in which that, you know, like as, a, as a, an editor at Stocksy, like I have a day job. Um, I still take, you know, anywhere from two to four shoots a week, you know. Well, that's maybe that's a little aggressive. Uh, it's more like two to six or no, four to six uh, free, uh, freelance jobs a month. Right. And that's uh, and that really just depends on the month. But like, I'm fortunate. You know, like I have a situation where, you know, when I want to shoot for myself, I can just say, I'm just going to shoot some film and just see what happens, you know, because, um, you know, I, I've, I've worked myself into a situation where that's actually possible. But if that wasn't happening, I don't think that there, you know, that I would be doing it at all. Well, yeah, I mean, my situation's a little different because I, I shoot with a partner, I shoot with another person all mm -hmm. the time. So my business partner is my wife, Anya, and she is not excited about film the way yeah. I am. So she's definitely the voice of reason that like, you know what, if this doesn't turn out, we're screwed. So we, you know, we need to bring a real digital camera and yes. make it work. So, um, we don't, we don't shoot any client work on film really. Yeah. Um, usually what it's been is that I bring, I kind of bring a film camera along too. And when there's a special moment that I think might lend itself to film or turn out just right, then I'll, I'll do that. Or I really enjoyed, uh, when we were traveling some disposable cameras, I loved that. I should do it again, actually. I mean, just through the, the quality of, of the images was really exciting to me. I don't know. It just which, like, it felt different from what I'm usually doing. Which ones did you use? Because I've had some, uh, some less exciting results using the, like the little Kodak ones. I was using Fuji, yeah. but just kind of a random one. There's a blog post about it on my blog. If you want to actually read it, read but all about my adventures of disposable cameras. It's, it's really fascinating. Cause I mean, you know, disposable cameras could be the new iPod, I guess, but or it took I, a iPhone. lot of, it took a lot of editing to get them nice. Cause I sent them to a cheap lab. I sent them to London drugs, mm -hmm. which their technicians are horrible. Sorry. <laughs> don't <hate> me. <laughs> um, but they just don't know how to adjust the photos they don't know what to look for so like if there's something black if there's too much black they'll raise it all the way until it's like just noisy and garbage or they'll it just there's too much magenta there's too much whatever like they don't really know yeah they're what just they're doing and it took a lot of work afterwards to get them um just to like fix the curve so it just looked normal so it looked the way that it was supposed to look really right um, interesting. And so if, if you're dropping your stuff off at a cheap lab and your photo, you're like, I don't get what the big thing is about film. It's, it may just be a bad lab. Like, um, you should take a look at the ones that we just mentioned and, uh, it's very that, different. That's, that's actually probably the, the most important part because like, that's, that's really one of the bigger barriers between film and digital is that like, you know, if you buy a nice digital camera and you have, and you have Lightroom or something like you're, you're going to get good results. Um, technically speaking now, like mm -hmm. you might have a Leica film camera and with a really nice lens, but if you don't take that to a reasonable lab, your results, you can't really expect anything from them Yeah, because it's exactly can... half of the equation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I like that about it. I like, it's part of the appeal to me that, um, there's you, the, I give up half of the equation mm -hmm. that I'm not going to sit there in Lightroom and obsess over a hundred different options of filming, emulating presets. <laughs> um, and that the things I get back are basically what they're going to look like. And I'm like, I can be surprised by a color palette. I never would have thought of. Yeah. Start scanning your own film. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'd love to. <laughs> well, you would and you wouldn't because like there's there's a whole new learning curve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, to speaking of scanning, so I, I looked into this a bunch as well. I thought that's what I was going to do is like just go and buy a scanner, and do it all myself. But looking at the flatbeds, 
Um, if you just read reviews about what the Epson V700 and 750, is that, is that correct? Yeah. Those are the ones everybody recommends. Yeah. And there's a lot of really positive reviews. But the fact is, when I look at most of the work done with those, it does not have the level of quality that these labs put out. It's no. not, I mean, it like, it can, it can pass, it can, it can scan the photo and it can be sharp, but it's not going to impress anybody. No. And that, in fact, actually, I think it's, it's even lesser than like the, the old film scanners that, that were being made 10 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the flatbed, it lends itself to a large negative. Like if you're doing, you know, four by five or eight by 10, then you're good. Um, <laughs> which we all are, yeah, of course, shooting easy, eight by 10. Right? Yeah. yeah. All the time. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that, you know, for flatbed, I, I just don't think that there is a, a viable option for, for professional use, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I use a Nikon no, Coscan 8000, which is, you know, at this point, it's a dinosaur, you know? It's, yeah, but that's, that's the, like, feeder, that's a, what, what do you call that kind of scanner? It's a different kind, of, it's not flatbed, it's a... No, it's, well, I don't know what you call it, actually. Call it a film scanner. Real film scanner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it you but know, the you, people you, that do an awesome job, like, so, um, uh, Mastin, um, is doing it all, um, at home with like, he basically has built a full, uh, I think Fuji, um, frontier. Yeah. Lab in his house. So like, this was an expensive endeavor, but now it's very cheap for him to be scanning his own film and it looks amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, go follow Kirk Mastin. If you want to see some nice examples of like the ultimate, the ultimate film setup. Who else does this? Um, Oh, uh, the couple that shoots on Stocksy who shoots a lot of film on Stocksy. That's a couple, somebody else that does it as well. Anyway, it's like, it's becoming a thing. You can buy these scanners for relatively cheap. And, um, I didn't know that then, somebody else had that system though. Yeah, but like it's it's amazing because all of a sudden, uh, Facebook snapshots of like a family event are insanely beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> shot on you know medium format film that was only a couple bucks to buy and develop and. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's you know if you if you want to talk about like if you look at medium format versus digital, so there's a lot of people who are going to say, well, is it is it just the color? You know, is that really the only thing that's really making that call for you as a, as an, as a, an artist about which medium to use. And it's not, there's actually, there's a feeling of depth that just the way that it looks is just, it's unique, you know? And like, and I wish that there was, I wish that I was smart enough to, to actually to speak, to speak to that in a way that, that actually made sense, but it feels different. You look mm -hmm. at the image, it feels different. Like, you know, people ask me all the time, like, well, you know, and my coworkers ask me all the time, you know, cause they're like, well, how do you know if it's film? You know, when you see something come through the cute stocksy, how do you know? And I'm like, well, I know immediately. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised how often I can spot it in even like Instagram. Yeah. No, I'm not always. Sometimes I'm surprised by a good filter, mm -hmm. but there, yeah, there's just these things that are not the same in any digital filter. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think if you're, if you're talking about medium format, like medium format, actually in terms of resolution looks a lot more like, um, what we're used to with, with modern digital cameras and lenses versus 35 millimeter, even with great lenses, like it's softer, right. you know, no matter what, like 35 millimeter images, no matter how awesome your lens is, it's going to be softer than the exact same photo on a, in digital using the same lens, you know, like it's just, there's, there's a difference in, um, for some applications that's going to be a disaster. And for other applications like shooting portraits, it can be quite pleasing because, mm -hmm. you know, with, with people, you know, we have all kinds of things about our faces and our skin that are unattractive and you don't really want all that resolution, you know? So when you're looking at it on film, it, it actually, the, the improvement is, is pretty amazing. You know, so that's, yeah. that's one of the things that really draws me in is because that's what I like to shoot with films. I like to shoot people. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 um, in the same way that it compresses the colors in the skin, it also does something else that I don't understand that is beautiful. It's something about the way that the, 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 the film emulsion reacts, you know, cause it's, mm -hmm. it's a chemistry 
thing. And it, we, we should probably just address the whole, <clears throat> I assume we have the same opinion about this, but the whole um, film versus digital thing, like which is better. And I think we're both on the same, of the same opinion that it's, that's not really the question. There are better things about each, of course. And you'd be crazy to not shoot any digital these days, or you would be, you would, it would handicap you at the very least. So shooting both is fun. Mm -hmm. You don't have to shoot film, but it's fun. And it offers things that, that you don't get with digital. So, yeah, I think that, um, you know, one, one of my favorite things about shooting film is that like, you don't have a choice to, but to slow down and take less photos. Like when I'm shooting, let's just say I'm shooting for stock and I'm shooting something with a a digital camera. Like I'm going to take hundreds of photos because I can, and it doesn't cost me anything to do so. And I don't want to miss anything. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to try to get every single detail I can. Um, but while I'm doing that, like I'm just clicking, you know what I mean? And and like, there's, there's processes happening in my brain, you know, it's still very different. It's very different, you know? And like, I'm just like, and I'm trusting things so much more just to, just to kind of fall into place. You know, mm-hmm. and when I'm shooting film, I, I know that, that, that I can't rely on any of those things that I rely on digital. Like I have to stop and really think about my exposure, you know, like I have to think about like where I'm focusing specifically. In some cases, I have to yeah. manually focus because some of my film cameras are only manual focus cameras. Um, there's just a million things and about like how, you know, light quality Wow. Mm. That one's a big one. Like, you know, like I don't, I don't think I'd ever really thought about light quality since I started digital, you know, because, or you think of it in relatively simple terms of like hard or soft, Yeah, you know, not like how many times did it bounce before it got to me or Or is the shadow breaking up into like multiple little lines or is it one smooth gradient or, you know, there's a million ways that light can be soft. Right. Well, hard. also, you, you know, one of the big things is thinking about how like different qualities of light affect the color in your film. Right. You know, that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. If you don't know what to expect, you might be really unhappy with your results. Yeah. Or that all daylight is not created equal. No. Did you see Interstellar yet? No. No. I just went to, I went to see it in IMAX. Oh God. So if you guys awesome. don't already know, Interstellar is shot on a lot of it's shot on 70 millimeter, which is really interesting that it wasn't all shot on 70 millimeter. While you're watching an IMAX, you actually see the image ratio like jump between kind of a standard widescreen and and then 70 millimeter oh, between wow. shots. Crazy. Yeah. But it's beautiful and it's being projected on film. And IMAX has said this may this is likely to be the last time a feature film is going to be projected on 70 millimeter. But I know it's really important to Christopher Nolan to have it distributed in that way. And he really insisted on it since it was shot that way. Yeah. But he, that's a dying thing. So go see it. Cause it may be your last chance to see IMAX film projected. Yeah. And there's, you know, as far as, sorry, I apologize for my phone. Uh, as far as looking at it, at movies and film movies, like if you don't, if you don't really have any, experience or knowing that something was shot on 70 millimeter, not actually knowing what it looks like and how just incredible it is. Like it's mm-hmm. really something to, to behold. Yeah. Baraka is the other great example from a few decades ago. Yeah. It's like, isn't that shot like on a, on panoramic as well? Yeah. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, it was like a custom camera. I believe it wasn't an, it was like larger than IMAX camera. Yeah. I think, and just, but it was, it's, incredible yeah. it's the best if you want to if you want to see a t- show off a tv that's what you should be watching yeah i can't it's even like i haven't even thing. seen that in in years i haven't seen it for probably 10, 10 or more seen years it on hd yeah no i've never years? seen it on like blu-ray or anything i've only yeah. seen it on like you know old school dvd and it, it was it's the best blu-ray to get it's great i i, I can't even like that I'm, I'm i'm like I got to go do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I'm realizing that we're pressed for time. So maybe okay. you should go do that. Yeah, I'll go do that. And, <laughs> it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and for now, let's kind of just sign off. And where, where do you want to point everybody? Like, where can people find you on the internet? What's your favorite um, spot? Well, so that's actually that you, you caught me at a tough time because I'm uh, <laughs> rebranding my website <laughs> and it's down. Uh, but you can find me at Stocksy at uh, Stocksy.com slash Camrocker, C-A-M-R-O-C-K. K E R. Um, I'm also on Tumblr 
And that is, uh, oh God, I don't even know my Tumblr address. I don't follow you on Tumblr. I didn't know that. What, what's wrong with you? Well, I don't use, I don't use Tumblr very much, but. I like Tumblr. Yeah. So it's uh cam rocker photo on Tumblr. And then, uh, if you want to follow me on, I'm going to follow you right now. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's camera run. <laughs> and that is, that's spelled a little bit odd because somebody stole my name. Like they stole Cam Rocker and they stole Cameron and everything else. So I was kind of like left out in the cold. So it's, that's a good one though. I like that. Yeah. So it's uh, K A M M E R U N. And, uh, <laughs> and that's on Instagram. And so this is my son and he wants to say good night. You want to say good night to the world? Good night. <laughs> good night. So that's where you can find me now. And uh, very, very soon you'll be able to find me at CWP.com, I believe. That's what we're trying, we're hoping to get. So we'll see, <laughs> we'll see we'll where see. it actually ends up. <laughs> uh, and you can find me most places at slash Stallman. Um, Instagram is probably what I post to the most. I have a Stallman.com and my blog is Tyler stallman.com <laughs> and then uh our you'll, you'd actually find the most work at um the the portfolio with my wife at, at stocksy which is stallman and bunyeka which you can't spell so i don't know go to stallman.com and there's links and, nice. you, and you can find it all there so thanks for uh watching anybody who may have watched and uh thanks for joining me cameron yes I'll thank talk you soon. talk again all right, all right. bye bye